Chapter Seven of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Winnesheek Woods and Prairie Lands. Our last winter in the Coulee was given over to preparations for our removal, but it made very little impression on my mind, which was deeply engaged on my schoolwork. As it was out of the question for us to attend the village school, the elders arranged for a neighborhood school at the home of John Roche, who had an unusually large living room. John is but a shadowy figure in this chronicle, but his daughter Indiana, whom we called Ingy, stands out as the big girl of my class. Books were scarce in this house, as well as in our own. I remember piles of newspapers, but no bound volumes, other than the Bible and certain small Sunday school books. All the homes of the valley were equally barren. My sister and I jointly possessed a very limp and soiled cloth edition of Mother Goose. Our stories all came to us by way of the conversation of our elders. No one but Grandmother Garland ever deliberately told us a tale, except the hired girls, and their romances were of such dark and gruesome texture that we often went to bed shivering with fear of the dark. Suddenly, unexpectedly, miraculously, I came into possession of two books, one called Beauty and the Beast, and the other, Aladdin and His Wonderful Lamp. These volumes mark a distinct epoch in my life. The grace of the lovely lady, as she stood above the cringing beast, gave me my first clear notion of feminine dignity and charm. On the magic flying carpet I rose into the wide air of oriental romance. I attended the building of towering cities and the laying of gorgeous feasts. I carried in my hand the shell from which, at the word of command, the cool clear water gushed. My feet were shod with winged boots, and on my head was the cap of invisibility. My body was captive in our snowbound little cabin, but my mind ranged the golden palaces of Persia. So much I know. Where the wonder-working romances came from, I cannot now tell, but I think they were Christmas presents, for Christmas came this year with unusual splendor. The sale of the farm had put into my father's hands a considerable sum of money, and I assume that some small part of this went to make our holiday glorious. In one of my stockings was a noble red and blue tin horse, with a flowing mane and tail, and in the other was a monkey who could be made to climb a stick. Harriet had a new china doll, and Frank a horn and china dog, and all the corners of our stockings were stuffed with nuts and candies. I hope mother got something beside the potatoes and onions, which I remember seeing her pull out and unwrap with delightful humor, an old and rather pathetic joke, but new to us. The snow fell deep in January, and I have many glorious pictures of the whirling flakes outlined against the darkly wooded hills across the marsh. Father was busy with his team, drawing off wheat and hogs and hay, and often came into the house at night, white with the storms through which he had passed. My trips to school were often interrupted by the cold, and the path which my sister and I trod was along the ever-deepening furrows made by the bobsleighs of the farmers. Often when we met a team, or were overtaken by one, we were forced out of the road into the drifts, and I can feel to this moment the wedge of snow which caught in the tops of my tall boots 
and slowly melted into my gray socks. We were not afraid of the drifts, however. On the contrary, mother had to fight to keep us from wallowing beyond our depth. I had now a sled which was my inseparable companion. I could not feed the hens or bring in a pan of chips without taking it with me. My heart swelled with pride and joy whenever I regarded it, and yet it was but a sober-colored thing, a frame of hickory built by the village blacksmith in exchange for a cord of wood, delivered. I took it to school one day, but Ed Roche abused it, took it up, and threw it into the deep snow among the weeds. Had I been large enough, I would have killed that boy with pleasure, but being small and fat and numb with cold, I merely rescued my treasure as quickly as I could, and hurried home to pour my indignant story into my mother's sympathetic ears. I seldom spoke of my defeats to my father, for he had once said, Fight your own battles, my son. If I hear of your being licked by a boy of anything like your own size, I'll give you another when you get home. He didn't believe in molly-coddling, you will perceive. His was a stern school, the school of self-reliance and resolution. Neighbors came in now and again to talk of our migration, and yet in spite of all that, in spite of our song, in spite of my father's preparation, I had no definite premonition of coming change and when the day of departure finally dawned, I was as surprised, as unprepared, as though it had all happened without the slightest warning. So long as the kettle sang on the hearth and the clock ticked on its shelf, the idea of moving was pleasantly diverting. But when, one raw winter day, I saw the faithful clock stuffed with rags and laid on its back in a box, and the chairs and dishes being loaded into a big sleigh, I began to experience something very disturbing and very uncomfortable. Or the hills and legions, boys, did not sound so inspiring to me then. The woods and prairie lands of Iowa became of less account to me than the little cabin in which I had lived all my short life. Harriet and I wandered around, whining and shivering, our own misery augmented by the worried look on mother's face. It was February and she very properly resented leaving her home for a long, cold ride into an unknown world. But as a dutiful wife, she worked hard and silently in packing away her treasures and clothing her children for the journey. At last, the great sleighload of bedding and furniture stood ready at the door. The stove, still warm with cheerful service, was lifted in, and the time for saying goodbye to our coolie home had come. "'Forward march!' shouted Father, and led the way with the big bobsled, followed by Cousin Jim and our little herd of kine, while Mother and the children brought up the rear in a pung drawn by old Josh, a flea-bit gray. It is probable that at the moment the master himself was slightly regretful. A couple of hours' march brought us to La Crosse, the great city whose wonders I had longed to confront. It stood on the bank of a wide river, and had all the value of a seaport to me, for in summertime great hoarsely bellowing steamboats came and went from its quay, and all about it rose high wooded hills. Halting there, we overlooked a wide expanse of snow-covered ice in the midst of which a dark, swift, threatening current of open water ran. 
across this chasm stretching from one ice field to another lay a flexible narrow bridge over which my father led the way toward hills of the western shore there was something especially terrifying in the boiling heave of that black flood and i shivered with terror as i passed it having vividly in my mind certain grim stories of men whose teams had broken through and been swept beneath the ice never to reappear it was a long ride to my mother for she too was in terror of the ice but at last the minnesota bank was reached la crescent was passed and our guide entering a narrow valley began to climb the snowy hills all that was familiar was put behind all that was strange and dark all that was wonderful and unknown spread out before us and as we crawled along that slippery slanting road it seemed that we were entering on a new and marvelous world we lodged that night in hoka a little town in a deep valley the tavern stood near a river which flowed over its dam with resounding roar and to its sound i slept next day at noon we reached caledonia a town high on the snowy prairie caledonia for years that word was a poem in my ear part of a marvelous and epic march actually it consisted of a few frame houses and a grocery store but no matter its name shall ring like a peal of bells in this book it grew colder as we rose and that night the night of the second day we reached hesper and entered a long stretch of woods and at last turned in towards a friendly light shining from a low house beneath a splendid oak as we drew near my father raised a signal shout hello the house and a man in a long gray coat came out is that thee friend richard he called and my father replied yea neighbor barley here we are I do not know how this stranger, whose manner of speech was so peculiar, came to be there, but he was, and in answer to my question, father replied, Barley is a Quaker, an answer which explained nothing at that time. Being too sleepy to pursue the matter, or to remark upon anything connected with the exterior, I dumbly followed Harriet into the kitchen, which was still in possession of good Mrs. Barley having filled our stomachs with warm food mother put us to bed and when we awoke late the next day the barleys were gone our own stove was in its place and our faithful clock was ticking calmly on the shelf so far as we knew mother was again at home and entirely content this farm which was situated two miles west of the village of hesper immediately won our love it was a glorious place for boys broad-armed white oaks stood about the yard and to the east and north a deep forest invited to exploration the house was of logs and for that reason was much more attractive to us than to our mother it was i suspect both dark and cold i know the roof was poor for one morning i awoke to find a miniature peak of snow on the floor at my bedside it was only a rude little frontier cabin but it was perfectly satisfactory to me harriet and i learned much in the way of woodcraft during the months that followed night by night the rabbits in countless numbers printed their tell-tale records in the snow and quail and partridges nested beneath the down-drooping branches of the red oaks squirrels ran from tree to tree 
and we were soon able to distinguish and name most of the tracks made by the birds and small animals, and we took a never-failing delight in this study of the wild. In most of my excursions my sister was my companion, my brother was too small. All my memories of this farm are of the fiber of poetry. The silence of the snowy aisles of the forest, the whirring flight of partridges, the impudent bark of squirrels, the quavering voices of owls and coons, the music of the winds in the high trees. All these impressions unite in my mind like parts of a woodland symphony. I soon learned to distinguish the raccoon's mournful call from the quavering cry of the owl, and I joined the hired men in hunting rabbits from under the piles of brush in the clearing. Once or twice some ferocious, larger animal, possibly a panther, hungrily yowled in the impenetrable thickets to the north, but this only lent a still more enthralling interest to the forest. To the east, an hour's walk through the timber, stood the village, built and named by the friends, who had a meeting-house not far away, and though I saw much of them, I never attended their services. Our closest neighbor was a gruff, loud-voiced old Norwegian, and from his children, our playmates, we learned many curious facts. All Norwegians, it appeared, ate from wooden plates or wooden bowls. Their food was soup, which they called bean-swaggen, and they were all yellow-haired and blue-eyed. Harriet and I, and one Lars Peterson, gave a great deal of time to an attempt to train a yoke of yearling calves to draw our hand-sled. I call it an attempt, for we hardly got beyond a struggle to overcome the stubborn resentment of the stupid beasts, who very naturally objected to being forced into service before their time. Harriet was ten, I was not quite nine, and Lars was only twelve. Hence we spent long hours in yoking and unyoking our unruly span. I believe we did actually haul several loads of firewood to the kitchen door, but at last Buck and Bren turned the yoke and broke it, and that ended our teeming. The man from whom we acquired our farm had in some way domesticated a flock of wild geese, and though they must have been a part of the farmyard during the winter, they made no deep impression on my mind till in the spring, when as their migratory instinct stirred in their blood, they all rose on the surface of the water in a little pool near the barn, and with beating wings lifted their voices in brazen clamor, calling to their fellows, driving by, high overhead. At times their cries halted the flocks in their arrowy flight, and brought them down to mix indistinguishably with the captive birds. The wings of these had been clipped, but as the weeks went on, their pinions grew again, and one morning, when I went out to see what had happened to them, I found the pool empty and silent. We all missed their fine voices, and yet we could not blame them for a reassertion of their freeborn nature. They had gone back to their summer camping grounds on the lakes of the far north. Early in April, my father hired a couple of raw Norwegians to assist in clearing the land, and although neither of these immigrants could speak a word of English, I was greatly interested in them. They slept in the granary, but this did not prevent them from communicating to our housemaid a virulent case of smallpox. Several days passed before my mother realized what ailed the girl. 
the discovery must have horrified her, for she had been through an epidemic of this dread disease in Wisconsin, and knew its danger. It was a fearsome plague in those days, much more fatal than now, and my mother, with three unvaccinated children, a helpless handmaid to be nursed, was in despair when father developed the disease and took to his bed. Surely it must have seemed to her as though the Lord had visited upon her more punishment than belonged to her, for to add the final touch, in the midst of all her other afflictions she was expecting the birth of another child. I do not know what we would have done had not a noble woman of the neighborhood volunteered to come in and help us. She was not a friend, hardly an acquaintance, and yet she served us like an angel of mercy. Whether she still lives or not I cannot say, but I wish to acknowledge here the splendid heroism which brought Mary Briggs, a stranger, into our stricken home, at a time when all our other neighbors beat their horses into a mad gallop whenever forced to pass our gate. Young as I was, I realized something of the burden which had fallen upon my mother, and when one night I was awakened from deep sleep by hearing her calling out in pain, begging piteously for help, I shuddered in my bed, realizing with childish, intuitive knowledge that she was passing through a cruel convulsion which could not be softened or put aside. I went to sleep again at last, and when I woke I had a little sister. Harriet and I, having been vaccinated, escaped with what was called the varilide, but father was ill for several weeks. Fortunately he was spared, as we all were, the pitting, which usually follows this dreaded disease, and in a week or two we children had forgotten all about it. Spring was upon us, and the world was waiting to be explored. One of the noblest features of this farm was a large spring which boiled forth from the limestone rock about eighty rods north of the house, and this was a wonder-spot to us. There was something magical in this never-failing fountain, and we loved to play beside its waters. One of our delightful tasks was riding the horses to water at this spring, and I took many lessons in horsemanship on these trips. As the seeding time came on, enormous flocks of pigeons, in clouds which almost filled the sky, made it necessary for someone to sentinel the new-sown grain, and although I was but nine years of age, my father put a double-barreled shotgun into my hands and sent me out to defend the fields. This commission filled me with the spirit of the soldier. Proudly walking my rounds, I menaced the flocks as they circled warily over my head, taking shot at them now and again as they came near enough, feeling as duty-bound and as martial as any Roman sentry standing guard over a city. Up to this time I had not been allowed to carry arms, although I had been the companion of Din Green and Ella Susher on their hunting expeditions in the Coulee. Now with entire discretion over my weapon, I loaded it, capped it, and fired it. Marching with sedate and manly tread, while little Frank at my heels served a subordinate in his turn. The pigeons passed after a few days, but my warlike duties continued for the ground squirrels, called gophers by the settlers, were almost as destructive of the seed-corn as the pigeons had been of the wheat. Day after day I patrolled the edge of the field, listening to the saucy whistle of the striped little rascals. 
tracking them to their burrows and shooting them as they lifted their heads above the ground. I had moments of being sorry for them, but the sight of one digging up the seed silenced my complaining conscience and I continued to slay. The schoolhouse of this district stood out upon the prairie to the west a mile distant, and during May we trudged our way over a pleasant road, each carrying a small tin pail filled with luncheon. Here I came in contact with the Norwegian boys from the colony to the north, and a bitter feud arose, or existed, between the Yankees, as they called us, and the Norskies, as we called them. Often when we met on the road, showers of sticks and stones filled the air, and our hearts burned with the heat of savage conflict. War usually broke out at the moment of parting. Often after a fairly amicable half-mile together, we suddenly split into hostile ranks, and warred with true tribal frenzy as long as we could find a stone or a clod to serve as missile. I had no personal animosity in this. I was merely a Pict, willing to destroy my angle enemies. As I look back upon my life on that woodland farm, it all seems very colorful and sweet. I am reliving days when the warm sun, falling on radiant slopes of grass, lit the meadow flocks and tall tiger lilies into flaming torches of color. I think of blackberry thickets and odorous grapevines and cherry trees and the delicious nuts which grew in profusion throughout the forest to the north. This forest, which seemed endless, and was of enchanted solemnity, served as our wilderness. We explored it at every opportunity. We loved every day for the color it brought, each season for the wealth of its experience, and we welcomed the thought of spending all our years in this beautiful home, where the wood and the prairie of our song did actually meet and mingle. End of chapter 7